Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey guys, Mark here. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. Now, if you collect email addresses or do link building and any of those emails belongs to someone who's in the EU now or in the future, then pay attention. Today, we're going to be discussing the GDPR, which is a new law coming in in just a few weeks time that will affect all websites and how they collect, store and use personal data of the 300 and something million people who live currently in the European Union. So regardless of where you're from, you should pay attention because more likely than not, unless you're a local business somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, then you're gonna be in scope for this. Usually in these podcasts, people start by clarifying that, oh, I'm not an actual lawyer, so this isn't legal advice, but I'm not gonna do that here. I've brought in an actual lawyer Not just any lawyer, but Suzanne Dibble, who is one of the UK's most well-regarded data protection lawyers with a 20-year history working in this field. There's a lot of wrong information about the GDPR online, and today we're going to try and set the record straight. We will be mentioning quite a few videos, Facebook groups, URLs, whatnot. You can find all of those in the show notes at authorityhacker.com forward slash GDPR podcast. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Suzanne Dibble. Hi, Suzanne. Welcome to the podcast for the second time. Hopefully we're recording this correctly this time. Thanks for having me. um, You're just so excited about GDPR that that these things will happen. So um, I'm I'm just delighted to be here talking to it, you know, talking about GDPR with you as as you're so passionate about it. And hopefully a lot of your listeners are as interested as you are in what is a very hot topic at the moment for online business owners. Yeah, and the date of the implementation deadline sort of coming up quite fast now. So it's I'm really glad you're you're here. I've seen a lot of kind of misinformation or contradictory information online about it. So hopefully we can clear some of these things up today. That is absolutely my intent to do that for you. Perfect. So can you just start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your your background? Yes, my name is Suzanne Dibble, as you've said. I am a lawyer and I just want to get that in there right up front because there's so much information coming out of what I would call non-reliable sources at the moment on the internet. It seems like every man and his dog is now a GDPR expert. So I would advise that you do only take your GDPR advice from people who really know what they're talking about. I am a qualified lawyer. I've been practicing for over 20 years now. I trained at a city law firm in the city of London, which is one of the largest law firms in the world. And I've been heralded by the Law Society and the Legal Services Board, which for those of you who aren't in the UK are our kind of main legal regulatory functions. I've been heralded by them as, as being a really innovative supplier of legal services to small business owners and really giving guidance in a very practical, jargon-free way. I worked with Virgin and Richard Branson on a big data protection project that was went right across their group and as a result of that they nominated me for solicitor of the year which in itself was a huge endorsement but to actually then be 
shortlisted and then voted runner-up in that prestigious award was a real accolade. I'm now consulting with multinationals on their GDPR compliance programs. And believe me, if you think it's problematic for, for small business owners, imagine being a multinational with data transferring backwards and forwards across hundreds and hundreds of group con- companies around the world. It's a huge undertaking to, to get it all sorted out. So in summary, I have experience in business law and, and, and specifically data protection law at both ends of the spectrum, at the really big end. But being a small business owner myself and working very closely with small business owners and particularly online business owners, I understand the types of issues that you're grappling with. So I give my advice in a very practical context for you. I think that's probably all you need to know about. I mean, you know, in summary, you can trust me is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite quite the pedigree you've got there. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here to, uh, to advise us. And just for the listeners, I came across Suzanne on Facebook, actually. Uh, she runs a group GDPR for online entrepreneurs. We'll put the link to that in the show notes for today's episode, which will be available at authorityhacker.com forward slash GDPR podcast, all one word. Uh, highly recommend you you join that group. There's been tons of valuable and uh, practical information in there. So can you just start by telling us what is the GDPR? I'm sure there's plenty of people who, who haven't heard of it out there. Okay, so the the GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation. It comes from our friends in the EU, and it replaces the current EU directive to harmonise national data protection laws within a single framework. Now, certainly people in the UK might be saying, what about Brexit? Does this mean that, that GDPR doesn't apply to us? Sadly, no, because the UK government wants to ensure that there is a free flow of data across Europe. And so, UK government want us to have the same standards in place as Europe do. So we'll be implementing the data protection, well, the, the data, a new data protection act. It's currently going through the House of Lords and it will be in place by the time GDPR comes into force on the 25th of May, 2018. Um, and it's all about data protection. Um, obviously, we, we have data protection laws at the moment, in, certainly in the EU and, and certainly in most other civilised nations, we have data protection laws that aim to, as the name suggests, protect the data of individuals. And I'd encourage everybody listening, actually, to think of this on both sides of the coin. Yes, it's a bit of a hassle for us as small business owners to comply with it. But on the flip side, you're getting a lot more protection as an individual, so when you're acting as a consumer or in whatever capacity, you know that your data is being much better protected because of the the increase in standards that are coming into force with GDPR. And what are the sort of key dates that people need to be aware of and some of these penalties that for potential infractions? I've, I've read some pretty, uh, pretty high numbers uh, posted around online. Yes. And I think, you know, before I get into that, the backdrop as to why data protection law is being revamped now and why it's becoming more serious is because data has and and processing of data has changed so much in the last even decade. And certainly in the UK, our last data protection act was 1998. And if you think what we were doing with data then and what we're doing with it now, there is a vast, vast difference. And the economist in a recent article stated that data is now the world's most valuable asset. It's no longer oil, it's data. And that's why really GDPR has come into force. And that's why the penalties have so significantly increased to reflect the importance that data has in our lives. So yes, it's true that the the penalties have gone up to 20 million euros, 
or 4% of your global worldwide turnover, whichever is the higher. There's a sliding scale, actually. So there's a level below that of penalties of 10 million euros or 2% of your global turnover. And those penalties at the moment in the UK, just to give you an example, the maximum penalty is £500,000. So that's a significant leap from £500,000 to €20 million. And as I say, the reason for that is because data is now so valuable. Now, before you all you know, go running for the hills and close down your small business for fear of being fined that amount, I have to say up front that that is in the worst case scenario. That's when you're processing large scale data. You're not giving any thought to data protection. There's been a severe data breach and you haven't had the procedures and policies in place to try to prevent that data breach. So that's for the really naughty people. So the chances of you as a small online business owner being fined anything like that amount is very remote. But what that does do, it signifies the importance of actually working towards compliance. And as a small business owner, there are actually some very simple steps that you can take to be well on your way to compliance so that if a regulatory authority ever comes knocking, And the way that that would ever happen is more than likely a complaint from a a prospect or a customer or even a competitor that would bring you to the attention of your supervisory authority. And chances are they would investigate you. They would look at your compliance. If you're working towards compliance, chances are they will be quite lenient and they will just show you how you're compliant and give you a certain period of time in which to become compliant. The ICO, which is the UK regulatory authority, has already gone on record to say they work more with the carrot than the stick. So they're they're not going to be finding small business owners the 25th of May. Uh, Absolutely not. There is not a, a vast police force of data protection officers around the world that are going to be checking every minuscule element of your compliance. Just isn't possible. So as I say, the chances are... The the way that you're going to come to the attention of regulatory authorities will be either if there is a data breach, because then you have an absolute duty to report that within a certain period of time, which we'll come on to, I'm sure, later. And the second is, as I say, if there is a complaint about you. But no, I mean, in my Facebook group, there are people, you know, getting very concerned about the tiniest element of compliance. And I just say, well, breathe take a step back, look at the overall picture. Let's think about what we're trying to achieve here. Look at the data protection principles and do the sensible thing. So essentially the takeaways are that the EU believes this is serious and we should take it seriously, but there's no need to panic. Yes, I think if you're sensible about how you use data and think about how you would like your own data to be used, then, you know, then you'll be okay. I mean, if you look at the, the data protection principles, um, it's things like you know, being using being transparent and being upfront about what you're using people's data for, about fair processing, about not holding data for longer than is necessary, for having suitable security in place, etc. It's all sensible stuff. So I think, you know, if you just bear that in mind, if, as I say, if there's the tiniest minusculeist compliance issue, but you are adhering to the general principles, then in my view, now, obviously, I'm not a crystal ball gazer, so I can't confirm that the the ICO wouldn't do that. But from everything that I've read and from the ICO's guidance, if you are being sensible, like I say, and and following the spirit of the principles, then a fine is exceptionally unlikely. Okay, that's that's reassuring to hear. And who actually needs to pay attention to this? Is it just EU companies or do do non-EU companies need to be listening up as well? 
Yes, I'm afraid it applies to everybody who offers goods or services to or monitors the behaviour of EU residents. So if you have an open website that EU residents can go and browse on, then in theory, you are processing their personal data. Because what GDPR did do is extend the definition of personal data. And it now includes things like IP addresses and cookies. So not to mention if you've got prospects on your email list, and indeed, if you've got them as customers, then this will apply to you wherever you are in the world. And we were talking just before the show, actually, that the case where an EU citizen is perhaps on holiday or using a VPN or something, and then they go back to the EU, that would then definitely apply to them. So you kind of have to, you can't really just block out the EU geographically in this case. Yes, I think that, um, I mean, it's a very interesting question and one that I've not been asked before. But if somebody is on holiday at the point where you collect the data, um, but then they go back to the EU, you know, processing is an ongoing thing. It's not just a when you collect the data, it's ongoing. Processing includes things like storage, deletion, um, obviously sending emails is, is processing. So if you want to have that ongoing relationship with that person, then comply. It doesn't matter whether they're outside of the EU. I mean, I have seen I have seen some articles suggesting that um, US businesses actually block EU residents from actually accessing, uh, you know, the website or access filling in the, the the freebie form or whatever it is. I think that's a bit of a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Uh, I would hope that as European citizens, we are valuable customers and prospects for a lot of US businesses, and you don't have to be that drastic about it. There's a few simple steps that you can take. And you will happily be able to sell and market to your EU customers. But I do know that that advice has been doing the rounds. So if you are in the States and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm not going to be able to market and sell to EU customers, then I really, you know, I don't think that's the case at all. I think there's very simple steps that you can do to comply. And, you know, why cut off a whole income stream for the sake of spending a couple of hours of getting your head around a bit of legislation and putting a few simple processes in place? Yeah, and I think that's the key thing. A lot of people, when they first read some of the uh, the language out there, it can be a bit confusing. But at the end of the day, for a small business owner, it's not that complicated. There there are a few things, and we'll cover them in, in the show today, that need to be done. But it's not the kind of end of the world that some people are sort of proclaiming it to be. Yeah. As a small business owner, you know, I run a website. How is this going to change the way in which we collect and use data. So typically at the moment, I'll have a opt-in form, collect people's email address, send them a free report, market my products to them, that kind of thing. Just give us an overview. What's going to change for this kind of activity? Okay. So the first thing to note is that before you process any data, you have to have a legal ground for doing so. And there are a number of different legal grounds. The ones that as marketers and online business owners, we're most likely to be interested in are consent, contract, which is where the processing is necessary for a contract that you've got with that individual, a legal obligation where the processing is necessary for you to comply with the law, or legitimate interest, which is where the processing is necessary for your legitimate interests or the, or the interests of a third party, unless there is good reason to protect the individual's personal data, which override those legitimate interests. So those are the main grounds for processing. Now, obviously, consent is only one of those. And certainly with when you have your opt-in box on your website, then typically consent is what you're relying on. 
what's changed with the consent ground for processing with GDPR is that there is a higher standard of consent than we currently have under EU legislation. And the guidance now says that consent should be given by a clear affirmative act establishing a freely given, specific, informed and unambiguous indication of the data subject's agreement to the processing, such as by a written statement, including by electronic means or an oral statement. So what that means is that there has to be genuine choice and control. It means that there's no more opt-outs. It means that there's no more pre-ticked boxes. It means that there's real transparency about the purpose of the processing. And it means that wherever possible, we need to give separate options to consent for different purposes and different types of processing. Okay, so we're going to see a lot more tick boxes um, in summary. So if you have a lead magnet on your website where you're asking people to enter their email address to send them your free report on whatever it might be, then what we've probably been doing up to this point hopefully what we've been doing is saying by entering your email you agree that we can send you our free report and we'll treat your data in accordance with our privacy policy and then have a link to your privacy policy i'm sure lots of people haven't been doing that that is what we should have been doing and and you know again nobody's been fined and i'm sure regulatory authorities haven't haven't been uh, clamping down on on every person that's not doing that as i say it's just not practical to monitor to that level but by the letter of gdpr and I think the thing to say, actually, going forwards is that what's going to change is that, you know, the, the regulatory authority resources aren't increasing in terms of having a police force. But what will change is that individuals will become a lot more savvy about this kind of thing. So if they notice that you're not following the, the right consent rules, for example, then they're more likely to report you if they're of that inclination, which let's face it, some people are. So on your your sign up for your lead magnet, ideally, you want to have a tick box per processing that you're going to be doing it. So with your tick box, you would have I um, tick here to to agree to be sent our report on whatever it is. Tick here if you would like us to send you emails about products and services that we think would interest you. Okay, so that's the best practice way of doing it. And, and if you want to use it for something else, then you would have another tick box. You would also still have your link to a privacy policy, which, which by the way, must be updated for GDPR because GDPR actually specifies a whole list of things that need to be included in there, which are unlikely to be in your existing privacy policies. So you definitely need to update your privacy policy. And how about if we're sending third-party offers or transferring data through other tools or to other other people? Do, do we need to go that granular and specify a tick box for each of those activities? Yes, best practice would be to do so, yes. But at, at the least, then in the privacy policy, you would be setting out who you are transferring that data to. But I'll, I'll come on to that in a minute, if, if I may, because that's kind of transfers to third parties is, is quite a big area. And I don't want to get that confused with the consent. Just finishing on this bit about your tick box, your tick boxes for your lead magnet. Now, I'd say best practice. Now, there is an argument that I think there's an argument that a, a legal ground for processing could be legitimate interests for sending. So you get them to enter their email address for the freebie. And I, I then think it's possible to argue that legitimate interests would apply if you then send them information that is absolutely related to 
that lead magnet. Okay, so if you've segmented your list to the extent where, say, I've got as a lawyer, I have a, a lead magnet for what want to be franchisors, people who are looking to franchise their business. I think arguably there's a, a ground for legitimate interest processing if I, I then send them a follow-up email sequence that specifically talks about franchising. Okay, because legitimate expectations is all about what is reasonable based on the relationship between the parties. And it's where you use people's data in ways that they would reasonably expect and which have a minimal privacy impact. Okay, now the problem with legitimate interest is that it's not black and white. Um, But, you know, again, I think that due to, say, there's no big police force going around. And because it is so black and white, I think until we see test cases, and I'm sure there will be some, then personally, I, and it, it's, this is all a bit of a risk assessment, because we just don't have the guidance. You know, we have the letter of the law, but then in terms of how you actually apply that practically, we're still waiting for guidance. And that will evolve. And it will also come out of case law and, and you know, challenges that are brought by the regulatory authorities. So it's kind of a watching brief, really. But certainly, if I was an online business owner, and I didn't have the, the CRM system in tick boxes at my point of checkout. I'm sure there's lots of fancy tools that let you do that. But say you didn't, then I think there's a strong argument for legitimate interest if you are following up very specifically on that area that they've already said they're interested in by getting your free report. As I say, best practice, as many tick boxes as you can get. And you also need to be able to store that consent. And because the burden of proof is now on us as data controllers, to show the consent and when it was given and what the processing was for, what the privacy notice was, et cetera. So we need to have those procedures in place so that if we are ever challenged, we can go back and say, well, actually, you consented on such a date by filling in such a form, which looked like this. And uh, how specific does that need to be? So you mentioned the case with the the franchise uh, agreement or whatever. Is it legitimate interest for you then to say, hey, you are interested in this kind of law. I also have this information or pack or offer about, I don't know, copyright or some other type of law. And Or is that too distant from the initial? It's really hard to say because there's no guidance. Um, so okay. I don't know is the answer. But I think, I mean, it's always just aside from the law, just in terms of good email marketing practice, it's always a good idea to segment as much as possible. And I think that certainly, you know, a little PS on the bottom of a, an email about, say, the franchising, a little PS saying, you know, I'd love to send you, you know, information that I think you would also benefit from, bearing in mind that it's contextually relevant to franchisees and and copywriting is one of those things. Sorry, copyright Mm -hmm. is one of those things and trademarking is one of those things. And then having little tick boxes as a PS at the bottom of the email and putting them in, you know, and if they then tick those sequences, putting them into those other sequences, I think would be fine. Um, because you're being transparent about it, you're being fair about it, you're, you're generally following the spirit of the principles. Mm-hmm. And does GDPR have any effect on single versus double opt-in? I know I've seen a lot of conflicting information about that on, on some blog posts, but uh, yeah. Yes, I've, I've seen people outright saying double opt-in is required by GDPR. It isn't required by GDPR. The only way in which double opt-in is, sorry, before I say that, it is an example of how to get consent. It is not mandatory. Okay, the one instance in which you might want to think about a double opt-in or something similar is when you're processing sensitive data. So sensitive data is a special category of personal data. 
And it involves things that, you know, they need more protection by their nature. So things like your ethnic, your ethnicity, your religious persuasion, your sexual orientation, your religious beliefs. I'm just trying to find the definition, actually. Um, But it's that kind of thing. And it's also been extended to genetic and biometric data for the purposes of the GDPR. I don't think I actually have that here. You know, it's, it's that kind of sensitive sensitive nature. Now, what GDPR says is that um, you need a higher level of consent to process sensitive data. And the two examples that the working party guidance give are to get a, a two-stage verification process, which could be obviously a double opt-in, or you would actually get their physical signature on the bottom of a form. Those were just two examples of how to get explicit consent for processing sensitive data. GDPR does not say you have to get a double opt-in. It's certainly evidence of consent, and it might be good practice in email marketing, but GDPR does not require double opt-in. Okay, that's good to know. And what data is in scope and what data is out of scope? Is there any difference between you know my personal email and my work email or a generic company email address, or, or how is it sort of divided? Okay, so for the purposes of GDPR, then any personal data that identifies a living individual is in the scope of GDPR. And so that includes, as I say, it includes things, obviously, names and email addresses, um, but it also includes now things like IP addresses and cookies, if it's possible to identify the, li- the, the living individual from that. In terms of what you were referring to then, in terms of the difference between personal email addresses, corporate email addresses, that's not GDPR. And for EU business owners, you might be familiar with the PECR, uh, which is the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations. And they talk specifically about direct marketing by electronic sources, obviously, including email. Now, it's a little bit messy because they were supposed to be bringing PECR into line with GDPR but they're way behind on redrafting PECR. So at the moment, we're going to have this a bit of a mishmash because both apply to sending marketing communications by email. And what PECR says is that you can send direct marketing emails to corporate subscribers. But for individual subscribers, you have to get consent. Now, just to confuse things, individual subscribers also include sole traders and partnerships. (laughs) So unless you have a system when you're collecting that data to know which is which, then you need to be a little bit careful about that. There's also this thing called the soft opt-in, which is where under PECR, you can email individuals if they are existing customers or have requested a quotation from you about a particular service. You're sending them um, information about products and services that are very similar to what you've already sold them or what they've inquired about. You notified them of their right to opt out at the time that you collected their data and you've given them notification of their right to opt out on each subsequent communication. So PECR is a little bit complex. Um, It's going to be changing probably in 2019 and they're probably going to align it with GDPR. So in my view, I would just go with a, just get consent, whoever it is, just get consent is the, um, when you haven't got another ground to rely on, get consent. Yeah. And you sort of said that this applies to marketing communication. How about sort of the simple lead gen, like, hey, are you interested in this topic? 
and then you know trying to set up a call with someone you know the typical kind of like sales process yeah. is that in scope as well yeah gdpr isn't trying to stop you connecting with people and you know reaching out to people so i personally think that's absolutely fine you know if you've seen somebody's website and you think oh they're they're you know that's a good a good blog for me to guest blog on and you just email them it's a one off email and you're telling them about yourself and then looking for that collaboration then I personally don't think anything in GDPR is designed to stop you doing that. It's what you then do with the, you know, the email address that that matters. If you then start sending, you know, put them in an email sequence or something like that, where you're trying to sell them your products or services, then that's a different matter. But for me, that initial reaching out to somebody is not what GDPR is designed to stop. Right. Okay. From that perspective, then, is it just the point where we try and sell them something that that changes the nature of that conversation from a, I guess, business relationship to a sales relationship? Yeah, I'd have to get the definition of marketing for you. But I mean, personally, I think that, you know, obviously, if we're following good email marketing practices, you know, three value emails, and then the sell. So I, I mean, I personally think that, you'd have to be looking at getting the consent. If you're wanting to send them that kind of sequence, I would be looking at just getting the consent up front when they first come onto your email list. If it's that kind of, you know, if that's the sequence they're going into. Um, If you're just reaching out to somebody separately for a collaboration, they're not even anywhere near that sequence. If you had that conversation and they said, oh, I'd love to find out more about what you're up to. And you say to them, great, shall I put you in my email sequence? And they say, yes, then that's fine. Oral consent does actually count. And um, the problem you've got is the evidence of that oral consent and the the record of that consent. Now, as I say, there isn't a vast police force out there that are going to go around checking that you've got records of everybody's oral consent. So just be sensible. If that person is going to object to you reaching out to them and then you putting them in a big email sequence that is ultimately going to sell to them, then get their consent to it. Be sensible. Okay, great. So let's come back to link building in a second. I just want to touch on something else. I believe there's some some kind of framework, is it called Privacy Shield, where you have to kind of check whether the tools you're using, I think it's if you're passing, you could probably elaborate on this, but if you're passing data (laughs) outside the EU or something, is there some regulation there? Yeah, so there's quite strict rules about transferring data outside of the EEA. Um, Essentially, you can't do it unless you fall within a certain category. And the certain countries that have had an adequacy finding, which are actually very few and far between, there's only about 10 or 12 of them. Canada is one of them, but the United States is not one of them. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa are not included in the adequacy findings. They're really random places like the Faroe Islands and Uruguay, but there's, only, there's not very many of those countries. What the US has done, however, it used to be the safe harbour, but that was challenged and, and the validity of that was overturned fairly recently. And what's come into place instead is the EU-US Privacy Shield. And that is a mechanism whereby companies that process data or where they're transferred data outside of the EEA, they can self-certify. There's a, a number of criteria that they have to adhere to in terms of data security and compliance. Um, And if they measure up to those criteria, then they are within the EU-US Privacy Shield and people from within the EU can transfer data to them based on that. So there is a website where you can put in the name of your company and check whether they are part of the EU-US Privacy Shield. Uh, Maybe we can put that in the notes to this uh, podcast, Mark. Sure. But people like um, Aweber are part of that 
EU, US Privacy Shield, Dropbox are, AWS are, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. But if you come in my group, there's a big long thread about which are um, in my Facebook group, that is, big long thread about who is within that privacy shield and who isn't in yeah, terms most, of like sort of the typical terms email you... marketing tool and uh, storage tools uh, the, the big names that most people have heard of will tend to be included in that in that list yeah some are um some aren't but yeah m- m- i'd say probably that's right most of them are um so that's the first thing to check whether they are in that privacy shield um now why is this important there is very strict rules on transferring data. But as a controller of data, you are liable. If they don't have the security in place and there's a data breach, then you are liable for that. And as we've already talked about, the the fines have increased significantly. So you need to be doing some due diligence on your processes and people that you're transferring EU data to, to make sure that they are going to keep that data safe and be compliant um, in fact, there is there's an obligation on data controllers in the GDPR to only use processes who are compliant with GDPR. So if you're listening to this and you are a processor in the US, then you know be conscious that as this becomes more, as small business owners in the UK and not even small business owners, any size of business owner become more familiar with GDPR requirements, they are going to be coming to you and saying, are you compliant with GDPR? And if you're not, chances are they're going to have to take their business elsewhere. Because if they are investigated by the regulatory authority, and and the regulatory authority says, did you do due diligence on your people that you're transferring the data to? And you say, yes, and they're not compliant, then that is an instance of where you've really turned your back on, on GDPR and the principles and compliance. And that's where you're likely to have more of a significant consequence and, and potentially a fine. So if you're providing services from the US and you're thinking, oh, I'm not going to bother with GDPR, do note that I think there will be a filter through of you losing EU customers if you don't comply with GDPR. And as I say, it's not something that I would do a knee-jerk reaction and think, okay, I'm not going to bother to comply. I'm going to lose all those customers. There are simple steps that you can take to comply. And actually, I'm going to be doing a separate webinar specifically for US businesses to show you guys how you can comply. So I don't know, Mark, maybe if when I I've not planned when I'm going to do that, but maybe if people are interested enough, you can you can share that, um, you know, in, in your with your community if that's interesting for people. Absolutely, yeah, definitely do that. And I was going to say as well on your your Facebook group, you, there's a list of the previous like videos, Facebook lives you've done about all sorts of topics like this for people with specific interests in in, in different areas of GDPR. And there's going to be something there. If you're listening to this podcast, there's going to be something there you should be uh, should be aware of. So I will, I will link to that group again, as I said, in the, the show notes from for this episode. Just to sort of move on a bit, once we have someone's email address and we're satisfied with the amount of consent they've given us in order to, let's say, promote our products or market to them or communicate with them in some way, does that need to be renewed over time or can we just sort of hang on to it forever and, uh, and, and keep emailing them? Consent has to be refreshed regularly. Um, I believe that certainly the ICO guidance, which is just the regulatory authority for the UK, has suggested that two years is the appropriate time period for refreshing that consent. Um, I, I think it's just good email marketing practice, isn't it, to keep in contact with your list and, and find out what they're interested in and what they're not. Um, so 
yeah, but the wording of the actual regulation is vague. It says, you know, it should be refreshed on a, um, a regular basis, but the certainly the UK guidance is that it should be every two years. And when that's being refreshed, could that be someone just, you know, opening your emails and clicking your, your links or is it, so they, do they have to re-opt in essentially in, in future as well? Yes. I mean, again, the guidance is lacking on it, but I would imagine that they would have to re-opt in. Yeah. Okay. By the letter of the law. Now, if they clicked on a link and you were investigated, I'm sure nothing would come of that, just to clarify, Mm -hmm. you know. So again, it's all a risk analysis. Yeah. I mean, if you you want to do it properly, I'd be every couple of years um, or even sooner, you know, just saying, look, I mean, ideally, we'd all have a preference centre with different tick boxes for what people are interested in and not. You're going to get much better open rates, much more engaged email list if we're actually going to be sending them stuff that they're really interested in. So I would be actually making it that as part of my marketing strategy, you know, making that as part of a reason that you're different and that they can trust you and that you're looking after them, et cetera, rather than just trying to fit it into compliance with the law. Yeah, that's one of the things, it's just general good email marketing practice because if, if you're just constantly collecting emails and just blasting everyone on the on the list, over time, people lose interest and stop reading and the sort of stats, the open rates, the click-through rates like really start to, to deteriorate and that can negatively affect you, your ability to deliver email to new subscribers who who are interested in your in your product. So there's probably... It's probably one area where it aligns quite well, I think, with uh, established email marketing uh, practice. Okay, so let's talk now about link building, if we can, because we have a lot of people in our community and the AHPRO Facebook group and just blog readers, podcast leaders, readers in general who do a lot of link building. It's a marketing activity in most people's view, but I've seen many people claim or say that this is also a, a in scope for GDPR because we're trying to gain a benefit from people by having them link to us or or whatever. So just, just what's your general thoughts on, on this? Is it Are we allowed to do this or, or not? So, I mean, I don't do it myself, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not actually transferring personal data or processing data at that point, are you? Uh, so, um, it's essentially, I was like, I would find a website that I would like to get a link from, and then I would try and get their contact information, their email, preferably, and I would get in touch with them and, and try and establish a relationship. Yeah. So like I said before, that was, that was the bit about prospecting, I suppose, where you're just reaching out, um, you're asking for that link. Uh, or that link exchange, then that would, in my view, GDPR is not designed to stop that. Uh, Okay, that's great news for me. Does that answer your question? I want to make sure that I've understood that properly. So it's the same as what we were talking about before, isn't it? Where you're just reaching out to somebody as a one-off and saying, you know, look, I'd like to do a link exchange. Is that what you're saying? We don't do link exchanges, but yeah, I mean, there's a couple of situations. A good example would be a guest post. So if I would reach out to a site in a similar topic to mine and say, hey, are you accepting guest posts? I have a couple of ideas. Do you like any of these? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's exactly the same as what I was talking about with prospecting. I, I personally think that GPL was not designed to stop you doing that initial contact. But then if you went on to put them on your list and market to them, you would need consent for that, obviously. Okay. Well, so something I do at the moment is I have a, a tool which I use to kind of manage the reaching out to these people. So once I found their email address, I'll put it into this tool and it'll send them an email saying essentially what I said before, are you interested in, let's say, taking a guest post? And if they don't reply seven days later or whatever, it'll, it'll send a follow-up automatically. We're not marketing or we're not selling to them at all here. 
but is the fact that we're following up, does that change things in any way? So where is the tool getting the data from? I'm inputting it into the tool. Oh, you're inputting it. Okay, fine. So just then think that that tool is, a, in theory, a third party that you're transferring that data to. So make sure that, that they're compliant, I suppose. Um, the follow-up for that, yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things where I'm sure nothing's going to come of it, even if the strict letter of the law is that, yes, that is processing data. Now, what what legal ground would you rely on there? Potentially legitimate interests. I'd probably, I'd probably say that, you know, it's, it's within your legitimate interests they're not in this in that example they're probably not expecting to hear from you but um there's no real impact on their rights and freedoms um you know all they do is ignore how many follow-ups are there is it like there's a couple of follow-ups a couple of follow-ups yeah okay yeah so yeah i mean the fact that they've there's got to be a relevant and appropriate relationship for legitimate interest to apply again there's not really a lot of guidance on what that is um could the fact that they have you know, just by the fact of having a, a website where you know that they do guest posts, for example, is that a relevant and appropriate relationship? I'm not sure is, is the answer to that. I think a good question to ask yourself with all of this is, are they going to be pissed off if you do what you're going to do with their data? And if they are actively welcoming guest posts on their site, um, it chances are they're not going to be. They're either going to say, yes, we'd love to, or they'll just ignore your couple of messages. And, you know, very unlikely to ever report that kind of behavior. So in my view, you know, and again, it's a risk analysis. I can't guarantee that it's all going to be fine for you. But in my view, that's very low risk. And I personally, as a business owner, would continue doing that. Yeah, I think it's also about how you you position it. If you're being sort of like really salesy and kind of like pushing really hard and annoying people, you're, you're probably more likely to get a bit of backlash and perhaps some complaints versus, you know, the polite, if you're interested, let me know, you know, giving people easy option not to hear from you in future and, and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And does uh, data storage come into scope for that as well? So just to give you context, let's say last week I, I reached out to 50 people to ask for guest posts. Um, I'm, I'm obviously not going to want to reach out to those same people again. So I'll, I'll keep a list of the, those people so on a spreadsheet or something whom, whom I've, I've gotten in touch with. Uh, does that come into scope here or is it... Uh, is mm. it Yes, it is. Presumably, you can identify people from that because you've got their name matched with their email address. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's absolutely part of processing and it's processing personal data. So again, you'd have to look at the, the grounds for doing that. And could it be legitimate interests? Well, arguably, I think you're, you know, you're holding it for a good reason, which is that you don't want to bother them again, you know, if they've, if they've not responded the thing that you'd need to be concerned about is, is data security to make sure that that list isn't used in any kind of way that it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, actually, around the data security side of things. Is there anything that that we as small business owners need to be more cautious of or pay more attention to um, after the 25th of May? Not much changes in GDPR uh, to do with data security, but aside from the fact that the fines increase, so obviously it's going to be more important than ever to keep data secure. Um, but I think a lot of things are fairly just common sense. But, you know, if you are using as a small business owner and an online business owner, um, things like if you've got um, confidential lists of information or lists that, that involve sensitive data, then, you know, password protect that particular document or encrypt it in some way. Otherwise, you know, making sure that you've got different passwords for different employees or different users 
you know, making sure that if you have got employees, you've got employee training and policies about data loss and, and, and notification of any breaches where there's been a loss of data, you know, if an employee leaves their laptop in the toilets or on the train, that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to actually interview a security expert in my Facebook group, um, because this is an area that I feel that I don't know enough, you know, on the ground practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that watch that watch this space on that, because I think that will have a lot more useful tips for small business owners as to how to keep data secure. But in summary, GDPR doesn't actually change how we should keep data secure it's just that the, the fines are a lot more so we need to in a way take it more seriously and you mentioned about the reporting deadline so is it something like after you identify there's been a data loss or or, or you've been hacked in some way you have to then report it somehow within i think it's quite a short space of time right yes it's within 72 hours um to the regulatory authority so yes again if you've got staff you know that it's really key that you are training them and, and that includes you know processes as well so if you're using freelancers for example and there's some kind of data breach then they need to know that they need to let you know as soon as possible whether there has been a data breach um, because you'll need to work out whether you need to notify the regulatory authority or not um, now I'm just trying to find the exact wording on that because it's not every single breach let me just find that for you So in the case of a personal data breach, the controller will, without undue delay and where feasibly not later than 72 hours after having become aware of it, notify the personal data breach to the supervisory authority, unless the personal data breach is unlikely to result in a risk to the rights and freedoms of natural persons. So, you know, if it's unlikely to do so, you don't have to notify. But I would always actually, again, there's not much guidance around what that actually means. So if you did have an, an event where an employee, you know, left an unencrypted or, or, you know, left some files lying around and, and there was a data loss, I would advise you to consult a lawyer at that point because it's a little bit of a grey area as to whether you would need to report it or not. But I think the key, the key thing to be aware of is that under this legislation, if there is a personal data breach, then there is the potentiality of having to make that notification to the supervisory authority within 72 hours. Yeah, it's probably a good excuse to take a good look at your sort of security password sharing user account setup. I know as our business was getting bigger, we had a lot of issues, uh, you know, where we'd have one account for something and share the sort of password around, but we've tried to kind of move away from that now using tools like LastPass to, to make more secure and unique passwords. It's just generally good practice with or without GDPR. So it's, it's probably a good excuse to, to, for, for business to take a look at that as well. One other thing I wanted to mention or ask you about rather was around services or tools which can find people's email address. So it's kind of stems back from the uh, the link building I was talking about before. We use a tool called hunter.io and there's many more, I think, find that email and there's a few others out there where you can sort of give them a domain name and it will give you a list of email addresses which it's found somewhere usually in the public domain for that website is it okay to continue using a service like this or are there issues here i think that if those email addresses are publicly available on their website and you're only using them for the prospecting that we talked about which is that initial approach then i personally think that would be fine it's where you're doing that scraping and then uploading email lists to your you know, your email marketing system and putting them into email sequences. 
that's where Mm -hmm. I would have concern with it. But if you're using it as a tool to give you a list, um, then I say, then if you're just using it for that initial sort of introduction email, I personally would, you know, be happy to do that. But it depends, you know, where's that email come from, really? Is it on a public facing website so that they're obviously inviting people to get in touch or not? So I think you need to look at that. And um, and like I say, don't bulk upload to Infusionsoft or MailChimp or whatever email service provider you're using and start marketing to them because that definitely wouldn't be okay. Yeah. So as soon as we start kind of trying to sell them something, that then it becomes more yeah. wrong, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Great. You also mentioned earlier about needing to update privacy policy and some of these legal documents, which you know a lot of people don't really pay too much attention to on the bottom of their site. But uh, it's very much something that people have to take action on within the next two months. What exactly do they need to do there? So as I said, the well, in terms of simple steps, because I think there's steps and then there's there's legal documents. So for marketers, certainly, if I, if I could encourage you just to focus on a few simple steps, these are the ones that I would encourage you to do. So the first is to audit and document all of the personal data that you already hold, where it came from and who it's shared with as the first step. The next step would be to review and document the legal basis for all of the processing so that's the the ground legal grounds that I was talking about earlier, like the consent ground, like the legitimate interest ground, like the contractual ground, like the legal obligation ground, etc. Then the next step is to review privacy notices and amend them. And I'm sure they will you know, all need amending because, like I say, the GDPR gives a big list of the things that you need to inform people about when you collect their data. Um, the next thing to think about is to email your list and, and ask for GDPR compliant consent if you don't already have GDPR compliant consent for marketing. And again, chances are that you won't because GDPR imposes a higher level of consent. Um, I have done, there is a video in my group, my Facebook group all around that issue. So if you're unclear about whether you need to email your list or not for that fresh consent, then go and have a look in there. Um, But again, I mean, I'm taking this as an opportunity to, I'm going to be doing a re-engagement campaign before I go out and ask for that GDPR compliant consent. And I'll be looking at it as a good opportunity to segment my list and to only be sending emails to people that they actually want. And then the next thing is to put systems in place to be able to keep records of that consent. And, you know, certainly systems like Infusionsoft do that automatically for you. Um, But that's certainly a good starting point for email marketers. Um, in terms of how I can help with that, what you need is a, is a, a data inventory. And I can give you a, um, a pro forma template of how to set out that data inventory that you then complete. Um, in terms of looking at the legal basis for the processing, I can help you by giving you a checklist for that. In terms of the new privacy policy, I can give you a template for that. In terms of the email that you need to send your list and ask for the GDPR compliant consent and also notifying them of the new privacy policy, I can give you that email. And many other things, like, for example, you will need a new processing agreement if a third party is processing information for you. So, for example, if you outsource your payroll, then you need to have the right type of processing agreement with that processor. Again, GDPR prescribes exactly what should be in that agreement. And payroll is just one example of those. 
you also need to think about if you're employing people, there's quite a lot of additional documents that you'll need there in terms of you'll need an employee privacy statement that is slightly different to your marketing privacy statement. You'll need an employee subject access request form, etc. I'm not going to go on because I don't know how many people listening will have employees, but needless to say, there's, there's a fair amount there. You'll also need to have policies in place like a data breach record, um, a DPIA form if you need to do that. And again, if you go, I'm not going to go into, I don't think we've got the time to go into what that is here, but certain of you will need to do data protection impact assessments. And there's a checklist for that and a form that goes with that um, and also a video in the group. Um, so what I've done is I have thought about what small businesses and particularly online business owners will need to be compliant with GDPR, aside from all of the free information and videos that's in my Facebook group. And I've put together a GDPR pack, which at the moment is an introductory price of £97, which is an absolute steal. But I did, I just wanted to make this very accessible to all businesses, no matter what size of business. So the details of that are in my pinned post of my Facebook group. And I think Mark's going to put a link to that too. And the price will be going up on the 30th of March. So if you're lucky enough to listen to this podcast before then, then go in and get your GDPR pack before the price goes up. But yeah, I mean, I'll say... I I bought this pack last week and it's it's really good so far. I definitely put my name on this and recommend anyone who's concerned about this to uh, buy it as well. Yeah, thank you. It's um, like I say, I've, I've put everything in there that I think people will need, and and done it in a really straightforward language because I know that when people get stuff from lawyers, you know, typically it's it's not that easy to read. So this is super practical, really easy to read for people, and um, it's just a really easy way of complying. And for those of you who are listening in the US, as I say, I'm going to be doing a separate training for you guys, and what you need will be slightly different. So I'm in all likelihood going to be putting together a separate pack for US businesses in order to be able to comply so that you don't have to cut off your EU customer base and prospect base. Brilliant. So is there anything that I haven't asked you today, which I should have asked you? <laughs> what a great question. There are areas that we haven't gone into. Um, we haven't done much on, on data subject rights, uh, which have been enhanced with GDPR. Um, we haven't talked about data protection impact assessments um i haven't talked about having to appoint a data protection officer which most hopefully most people listening won't have to do but again if you go into my group there is a specific video on that and you can work out whether you are legally required to appoint a data protection officer or not and um, so there's a few things like that but i think for the audience being mainly you know sort of email marketers and um uh, selling info products i think we've covered the main things so so well done mark you've clearly paid attention when you listen to my webinar <laughs> I did my research. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much, Susanna. Again, really, really appreciate you coming on today. It's something I think a lot of people were uh, or or are misinformed or certainly very nervous around. And I, I think you've helped to uh, clarify a number of things today and probably uh, be a fair few people sleeping a bit easier tonight. At least I will. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for having me. And um, I hope that lots of your listeners come and join my Facebook group where there is a very active discussion about this at the moment. Yeah, lots, lots of people sharing resources, like, for example, you know, who's, who's signed up to the Privacy Shield and who's not and things like that. So it's all, all just to help people get clear on it and get compliant.
Brilliant. And uh, I'll, I'll definitely post that on our, uh, our Facebook page as well so people can find it. Um, if you're searching for just search on Facebook for GDPR for online entrepreneurs. And I'll also link to that in the show notes for today, which you can find at authorityhacker.com forward slash GDPR podcast. If you enjoyed the show today, then uh, please go there, leave us a comment, let us know what you think. Um, are you ready for GDPR? Do you need to hear more about it? What are your thoughts on it? Let us know there. And thanks again, Suzanne. We'll be back next Monday with the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.